Misfits. Hi, my name is Alan. Um, uh, my full name is Alan Varghese. I'm originally from India, specifically the South Indian state um, called Kerala, uh, which is down the tip. So I'm, I grew up um, as a Christian uh, in a Christian home. Uh, my parents are pastors. Um, so they, they moved from Kerala to Tamil Nadu, which is further south. Um, so I've always known them as missionaries and pastors. Um, so I grew up in church uh, pretty much my entire life. Um, I grew up as like any pastor's kid, uh, go through all the challenges and all the requirements or all the things that we consider as normal as if like attending five times a church, um, setting up church, doing everything in church. And that was my life. Um, so we eventually moved from Tamil Nadu back to Kerala. And then uh, from there, I, I moved to uh, Bangalore, where that's where I did my studies. Um, so I did my bachelor's in economics, political and sociology, got hooked into sociological thinking and social work. I wanted to do more practice, so I did my master's in uh, social work uh, in Bangalore, specializing in psychiatric and medical social work. Um, that's when I, so the entire college life, um, yeah, I was a Christian, I called myself as a Christian, I was part of church and everything, but never really questioned or doubted or thought differently. Um, but until I finished my social work, I was like, ah, I have, where do I do, what do I do after this? Um, and that's when the faith component came back to my picture, because when I decided to go back to Kerala, I'm like, I, I will be seen under the shadow of my parents and their pastors. Uh, and, and I'm becoming an adult. I have to just really think about this faith. Um, and I had also gone through a series of like, sort of faith crisis uh, questions um, in, the, in the sense of like, uh, it's not necessarily Christianity, Christianity is true or not. It's more on the line of like, I was really disappointed about church and expectations. Um, uh, why, why, why Bible says one thing and then the Christians that I've seen doing something else um, and especially I'm a pastor's kid, you, you have an insider's knowledge to some extent. Um, sometimes I feel like, well, Christians are not that loving as they think they are. Um, so all those components come into the picture of, of my doubt. Um, but at the same time, I never questioned the power of Jesus because I've seen um, the, the most dramatic things that I've seen growing up is like casting the demon, uh, people getting healed, um, <coughs> a lot of those kind of things. So I, I never doubted the power, um, whatever that means. Um, so in my case, it meant like seeing miracles and casting the demon. So I never questioned the faith aspect, but I questioned um, how to think about it and what does it mean to be Christian. And especially me doing social work. Um, I've seen people, those who are not Christians, doing social work uh, and my entire class of social work. Um, I, I was, maybe we are like five or six Christians and the rest of 25 people were non-Christians. Um, so yeah, that's the nutshell. And then, but then I had gone through a lot of faith crises, moving into, I had a lot of serious questioning. And I got into a job, um, got into another uh, program in London School of Theology, doing a master's in psychotherapy, where I wanted to integrate Christian theology with um, secular, secular counseling models. And that, I, I would say more than 
that degree more than giving me a tool uh, to think uh, social action and psychotherapy, I, I went through more of like a healing process for myself. And I would say that's where I reinvented my faith um, that God called me to like ministry per se. Um, but I did not go into full-time ministry or, or anything ministerial in that sense, but I got a job in a secular uh, institution in, in, India, in, in England, in London, so I worked there, uh, working with vulnerable kids um, in London for a couple of years. And then after that, uh, my visa expired, which led me to again think more into working with churches and theological learning, and that which led me further into doing a, a program uh, at Oxford University. So I did a certificate in theological studies. And then after that, my wife, uh, I met my wife in India. Um, she's American. Um, so because she's American, obviously, I, I decided to move to America. Uh, and then I continued my studies in uh, theological studies at Duke University, um, which, which kind of exemplified uh, more of my faith, or I would say strengthen my faith in how to think about theology and mission um, and social action. Um, it was at Duke actually I specialized more in the world, world Christianity and mission studies um, that kind of navigated where I wanted to go further in my PhD studies, um, which, which, which led me to Asbury Theological Seminary to do my uh, PhD in uh, world Christianity, I came in to do a PhD uh, dissertation to do interreligious conversations and um, mission, but then it switched to Pentecostalism. So it's sort of like God put me back into where I come from, um, because that's where I come from back in India. And God led me to write and uh, research more on Indian Pentecostalism and social engagement. So that's where I'm at so far um, in my journey. Um, and, and I would say faith, my personal faith in what I do is kind of very meshed together. Um, and I feel like God has taken me on a journey for the last, uh, let's say, 20 years to accept myself and, and don't disown my story, but accept my story as in like my ethnic story, uh, my faith crises growing up in the churches, and at the same time, I'm professionally doing social action, social work. And God put me on a journey to make me think how all these go together. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode here of Ministry Misfits. How are you this morning, Andrew? I'm all right. Doing good? Yeah, we actually have air conditioning up here now. Yeah, it's a lot cooler. We've had a couple weeks of some extreme, I shouldn't say extreme Triple heat. digit temperatures. Yeah, yes. at least in the real feel. For, for all of our internationals, Fahrenheit triple digits, yes. which, yes, it is as hot as you think that actually is. Especially in the attic up here. It gets a little warm, but... Yeah, it felt more like four digits up here in the studio with the lights on and the door closed and no AC. So we have AC, and so now we're not, you know, just sweating profusely and risking shocking ourselves yeah. on all of our electrical equipment up here but that's why we've got these nice black ministry yeah. misfits t-shirts that hide a lot of that too which it you also, can also makes it harder though because the black t-shirts are heavy and hot True. and so but if you'd like to buy one for yourself you can also check one out at our ministry misfit yes shop the merch on our website. the merch store is still up the teak fatis are also yep. still there go buy the teak fatis but that's not what we're talking about today. No. We are going to talk Tikva in a couple of weeks, hopefully. We've got a couple of options that are on the table and schedules working out and things like that. But today, 
I am super excited about this one because this one I get to just sit here and kind of nerd out for a little bit. <laughs> Isn't that what you like to do most of the time? Yes, but this more so than, <laughs> than other areas because what we are doing today is we are talking to Alan Varghese, who is currently working on his PhD at Asbury, but he already holds a bunch of degrees from like places that are way smarter than anybody else yeah like duke university duke, so duke that's divinity school yeah, so. he's got a certificate from oxford i mean come on now we very we, close to malone <laughs> right yeah that's it yeah that's it yeah okay where's yeah so we are with alan today though and actually this is the first time i think that we have a guest that was referred to us from another guest because we found Alan through good friend Joe Ash Thomas. After Joe Ash was talking on Twitter about his family's faith story and how far back he can actually trace his spiritual lineage. And so I asked Joe Ash, hey, you want to come on and talk about this? And he said, I'd love to. But I've got a guy that's way smarter than me that can talk about it in way better detail. and." and provide way better information on all of this. And then Alan popped into the chat and now we're here. So welcome to Ministry Misfits, Alan. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, shout out to Josh though. Yes. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Josh. He was actually hoping to be able to join us, but you know, he's busy doing important stuff and traveling. So saving you know. the world. Yeah. So, Alan, you, we already said you are well certified and documented. You're working on your PhD and all this stuff already, but you are here to talk the Eastern Church and specifically the Indian Church. So let's just start out. Obviously, you are connected to the Indian Church. You already told us your parents were pastors within India. You grew up there. You even met your wife there, even though she's American. Um, what is it about the Indian church that is, you know, different than the rest of the world as far as church that would make you beyond just your ethnicity want to dive into it so much? Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for the question, though. It's a, it's a very long question. You know, people write books on this um, and dictionaries and, and <laughs> volumes of history. Um, but I think. When people talk about Christianity, uh, people quickly go on Western Christianity, um, and I think without with the, which is which is fine. But when you talk about the global Christianity, the, the Christianity we talk about like as as a movement, um, India has a very strong case to make from very early on. Uh, so start. I'm talking about Jesus time, like after Jesus time, Thomas. Um, so historically, we can't, we don't have much data to verify it, but <coughs> Indian church or Indian Christianity traces a tradition that comes from Thomas, the Jesus disciple Thomas. So we are, way, we are tracking back way uh, into like 5280 or 6280 that time. So, uh, and, and historically verifiable facts, we can start to see from 380. So even that, it's very early mm-hmm. compared to Western Christianity. So, and the story goes that Thomas came um, 
and then there, there and then there's a lot of uh, narratives about it, but I'm not going to go into it. But and uh, in, in about 300, uh, I want to say 323, um, one ship uh, containing a bishop called Thomas Canna. Um, well, he was a merchant, and he came with a couple of bishops and a few Christians from Syria, moved in there, uh, and they they met the existing Christians. So. Again, at the time, people were fine with, people traveled a lot. I mean, that was part of the family trade route from uh, Syria to down uh, south. Uh, so people used to travel. So they didn't find anything like that we normally find, like an invasion or like a threat to cultural identity or none of that. Um, the, the story goes that they embraced uh, the visitors. One thing, one crucial thing is that they integrated to, uh, along with more of a, within the existing caste system. So they did not really challenge the caste system or classes. They just kind of integrated within that fold. That had consequences later on, because in some site, uh, some some aspect in some place in South India, that meant Christianity was seen as, or Christians were seen as sort of privileged, um, privileged. And there is a book lately came out in 2018 uh, by Soncha Thomas, and she, she called the title the book Privileged Minorities, because tracing it back to this group of people. Um, <coughs> so that's one big reason to talk about that, because that's a very early historical narrative. And, and obviously, South India is massive. So even South India is massive in the sense of diversity of it. So that history, that going back to 380 and tracing it up, you see a lot of different factions start happening, um, a lot of different movements, people spread out. Uh, instead of more of a conversion, they were more of like integrating the faith into the existing culture. That was that was their main motto. So, but they did exist. So endogamy was a big thing. Um, they, not, this is not to say people did not convert at the time. People did, but at the same time, it was not like a movement. There was no intentional church growth or anything like that. Um, so people existed as a community. And long story, fast forward, um, then the Catholics arrived around in the 15th century. Um, I'm talking about 15, early 1500s, 14, uh, the latter point of 1400s to 1500s. And they, when they came, it took them by surprise to see that Christians exist. Um, so then they established seminaries. Um, so the concept of seminary came in by the Catholics. They, their intention was clear to basically reconvert um, these native um, Syrian Christians to a Latinization process. Um, and they had a lot of issues happening. They, they called a synod. It's called uh, Synod of Dimapur, where they intentionally uh, kind of proclaimed that their allegiance to the Pope and therefore they're going to confiscate all these Syrian datas and documents and everything, and then they burned it. So the, one of the reasons why we are lacking in history of this old church is also because of this burning. Um, but then obviously with all narratives and everything, still stories goes back, we can trace it back, but a chunk of things got burned. Um, but they did not die there because there's a faction of Syrian Christians from there started to revolt. Um, so there is so the story where a story goes 
Well, even even before that, I mean, even after there was an incident where so up until that point, from early first century, first or second century till that point, um, South Indian Christians had a connection with the Syrian Christians in Syrian in Syria. So there has by that time, Syrian Christianity has gone through multiple factions. There's Jacobites, there's Nestorians, um, there are, there are Syrian Christians. So the, they themselves were going on changes. And also remind you, at that time, the Byzantine Empire was withdrawn from the Syrian Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Syrian Christianity is going through a lot of changes with the Arab invasion. And, and that is happening. And and I when I did some work on Theodore Abukura, um, he is one of the earliest Arab-speaking uh, uh, bishops. He, he did narrate about South Indian Christianity. So people in Syria was well aware of the Christianity that was in South India. So all that to say that they were starting, they were they had the strong contact. Also, that also means they did send bishops uh, from Syria to South India. So even though the, the the local churches and the local bishopry was led by local leaders, uh, the ma- main bishops still came from Syria, and that was fine, totally fine with it. There was nothing revolt about it. There's nothing bad about it. People sustained that part of the heritage. Um, and but when the Catholics came, they intentionally—that was the time when one of the bishops died. And the story goes that the bishop from Syria came to the port, um, and I don't know whether it's true or not. But this is what's told that um, the bishop who came from Syria was taken into custody by the Portuguese, and it's been said that he was killed under the under the Portuguese custody. And that led to this revolt and revolution among the uh, Syrian Christians, and they they came together. Uh, uh, there was a there was a temple, there was a, a church in Cochin, and there was a cross outside of the church. Um, it was called a sort of a crooked cross. It looked like not a straight cross, but a little crooked. Um, so they they came together around that cross and pledged their um, allegiance against the Pope and the Catholics. So a lot of historians see that as the first faction of uh, South Indian Christianity. And this goes back to, I would I want to say like 14, um, no, 1500s. And ever since that point, there has been a clear faction of Catholics uh, who are Latin and, and then the Syrians. And then obviously from that moment onwards, there's tons of factions. Um, happened within Catholicism, leading into Syrian Catholicism and Malabar Catholicism, um, and then the Latin Catholicism, and then the Syrian Christianity again uh, had multiple factions: the Syrian Jacobites, um, then Syrian Catholic, uh, Syrian Christians. Multiple factions came forward, and then the Portuguese got kicked out by the Dutch. When the Dutch came in, the translation efforts came in with uh, with the Dutch came in the and the Lutheran missionaries and Germans came in and then the British came in and kicked out the Dutch and the, and the Germans. <laughs> and then along with the British came also the Anglican church. And so the Anglican church kind of, again, it took them off surprised to see that there's a vibrant Christian community. You have documents from uh, um, missionaries like Benjamin Bailey, uh, William Carey, uh, and they all basically talking about, I mean, at least in South India, Benjamin Bailey talks about it. It took them by surprise that 
uh, there are Christians here. So their intention was not to bring the gospel, but to what they call it, like uh, recover the lost faith. Um, or like, so according to them, it has become more of like, a, uh, it has lost its vibrancy. So, so they wanted to recapture the gospel. Um, so they thought by translating the Com Book of Common Prayers into native language would actually do that. It did not. But then it happened <laughs> while they were doing it, somebody had this great idea that I think we should translate the Bible, which they did, <laughs> at least in Kerala. And that took fire. So but I also say that the Bible translation of words were not exclusively from the CMS uh, uh, English missionaries. It started with the Lutherans. Um, and, and I think the, one of the earliest translation efforts was done by someone called Bartholoma uh, Sengenbach. Um, he's, uh, he's, I think he came with the Lutheran. Um, it, it's, we're talking about 70, early 1700s. So a lot of multiple people have been actually trying to do the translation, um, but it was not able to, like in a mass produce kind of thing, which British did. So, and I, I personally think what Laman Sanna talked about, the translating the message, translate uh, and vernacularization was pivotal in, this, in, in, in making Christianity as a movement. So you just translated the Bible and then the local Christians took that on and made it available for the entire church, which is the first time ever happened. Um, so for telling people that, hey, you've been oppressed for a long time, and you're not given a document saying that this is from God. And now not only that, you put that in your own language. So for them, hey, God can speak to me in my own language. And that is revolutionary. So mm -hmm. by, the, by the end of 1800s, that started the revival. Um, and so, and out of that in 1889, there was a church called Martoma Church came out of... Um, uh, that kind of specific uh, revival. And at that time, everybody, uh, I mean, the, the Protestant Christianity or like the, the reformative party, that's what they were locally called. They were famous, notoriously famous for reading the Bible. Everybody read the Bible. And then from that, Pentecostal movement came out of it. Um, so that's a very nutshell uh, of history. And I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I missed out a lot. <laughs> we probably want to clarify a couple of terms for people that may not be yeah. familiar. Because if you aren't sure about the empires he mentioned, you just need to go back and just, you know, take another world history course. But as far as <laughs> no the deal. the church factions, we want to make people probably know what they are, but actually don't realize they do. So he mentioned a lot of different church factions there. The first one, the big one, was the the Syrian Church, and that is a branch of Eastern Orthodoxy that comes from comes out of Syria, Antioch specifically, and that is very much an Orthodox faith that relied out of, like you said, the teachings of Thomas, and it it was a it's a very very old old theology it is very similar to the theology both in style and age that we have with the jerusalem church he also then talked you know catholicism we know but specifically i believe you were talking it was roman catholicism that entered correct not yeah. not Byzantine. 
And specifically, you said it was Portuguese Catholics, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is different than what we normally associate with Roman Catholicism as well, because the Portuguese Catholics, you're going to be more likely to see a branch of it that is similar to like what we hear about within the the Inquisition coming out of Spain and Portugal and everything else. It was a it was a different style than the Jesuit Catholicism that we normally associate here in the U.S., and then he starts talking Protestantism. Protestantism doesn't really change country to country very much. The you know I like I actually like the term you use of the the reformative party more than just Protestantism because mm-hmm. I think that's a much better definition for what actually we see throughout history. But the the other big one, and this is where your specialty area is. You're talking about you know Pentecostalism within India is Indian Pentecostalism, the same thing that we would associate Pentecostalism here in the U S or is this a different style with the same name? So, um, well, my counter question was, what do you mean by American Pentecostalism? (laughs) (laughs) Because I, so I know what you mean. Um, Pentecostalism has gone through, let's say history of hundred years, right? And there is multiple factions within it now. So let me broadly say this. Pentecostalism, initially, when people wrote about the history, they went tracking back from Azusa Street Revival, right? But even before that, there were Pentecostal-like revivals in places like India. So historically, people have traced down 1880s, that period. Let's say from 1850 to 1900s. People have gone through Pentecostal-like um, uh, like experiences. So when I say that, I mean healing, um, speaking in tongues to some extent, and uh, people are evidently seeing casting of the demons. So you, you, what do you associate as part of like a bodily experience of the Holy Spirit? People have gone through it. They didn't know the vocabulary of it. Um, so when I said like when people started reading the Bible in their own language, they started to, so when they read the Bible, they're like, okay, apostles had it, can we have it? So they pray. So that's how <laughs> normally things happen. That's that simple as it is. Normal revivals happen. Somebody will preach. Somebody will expose the, uh, the verses from the Bible as they understand it. And then they pray for it. So a lot of people did actually go through. And you got to also understand a context like India, and these things are normal, like, when I say this right. now normal, I'm more like I'm like spirit world intersecting with the physical world is a normal reality. Right? So for the Western mind, it was something Western Christianity that was something new because um uh someone called Paul Hebert, he was a missionary from an American missionary, went to India. And uh he was encountered with the story like so he was there and, and somebody came to him and said, Hey, can you pray for my daughter? Because she's going to die. And apparently he was confused about what to do. Because he was not taught how to pray for a sick child. Instead, he was taught how to preach, what to do, expose the doctrines and everything. So he went through a a faith crisis in the sense of like, how do you do this? So he wrote this um, article in, I think, 1983, um, The Flow of the Excluded Middle. That's the title of the art. Um, When I read through it, I'm like, that's normal. What would I do? Just go and pray. (laughs) 
as an Indian, I'm like, that's the first impulse. So meaning, <laughs> and according to him, he's saying that, that from a Western point of view, you see the world in, in two tier, like the, the heavenly realm and the spiritual realm is up above and here is physicality. This doesn't necessarily intersect. So that he is saying that there's an excluded middle where a lot of people from India, Asia, Africa, <coughs> where like these two worlds do intersect. Meaning like you see the spirit, spirit lives in forest. Um, that tree, that wind is happening because the, the demon is angry. Um, so within that cultural uh, cosmology, people, people like inevitably believe that God can move. So from 1850 onwards, when people start to hear these kind of scriptures from their own language, they really believed it. They're like, okay, we're going to do this. And people did get uh, physical manifestations. They started speaking, speaking in um, tongues. So, but they did not have the vocabulary to do it. So they would say, okay, this is part of the reform party. So they are, they're still saying that it is within the branch of Christianity, but we are, we are reforming or reviving. So, and then obviously from 1889, when the Martoma church came, they they were not really great fans of um, speaking in tongues or anything. They're like, let's keep it scriptural. So they kind of like, okay, we don't want to go that far. Um, so that's when the Martoma church, the revival happened and and few people came out of the Martoma church and the Brethren church, just to let you know, Keswick movement influenced people were there. Um, in, 18, in 1905, um, I would say in South India, they started to gather together. So th all these things happened before Rasasa Street. And then when you move up to North India, Pandita Ramabai, there's a, her, she, her name is prominent because she's, she's a uh, Hindu woman, widow up there in North India. She was running a school for girls and they encountered, in her address to Keswick Conference, she mentions that they did encounter people speaking in tongues, healing in 1905 so that is kind of like coincidental uh, with Asusa Street without uh, the influence of Asusa Street revivals now but then after that from 1910 onwards we did get American missionaries from Asusa Street influences from from missionaries who was who were influenced by the Asusa Street and the subsequent American um, Pentecostal theology coming to India but that brand of American Christianity, even today, would call this classic Pentecostals. So I would say, if you want to use the terminology, we did have classical Pentecostals, meaning they did read the Bible more. They, they kind of like, okay, whatever is in the Bible, we can do it, right? And so that brand got reformed over the years. Now we have neo-Pentecostals, mm -hmm. all right? Okay, let me trace it back. So, so that brand, classical uh, Pentecostal, came up, and then what happened immediately after the existing uh, denominations got also revived, revitalized, which means I'm talking about Catholics, uh, Anglicans, Methodists. Um, so, some in some way, Catholic uh, classical Pentecostalism sort of impacted all the existing Christian denomination to overtly use the language of Holy Spirit and and more of an experiential language. So that's called the second, uh, what do you call the second wave? 
uh, the scholarship. So the first wave is classical Pentecostal. Second wave is more of like a, uh, Catholics and Anglicans and everybody getting empowered by the spirit. And even in a lot of circles, using speaking in tongues. And the third one is perhaps um, a little controversial. It's called the third waivers, which is the neo Pentecostals and 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 the Charismatics. And I know some people have issues with me terming them neo Pentecostals. They would they would say Charismatics. So they are the ones who are like Peter Wagner, <laughs> um, people like Peter Wagner, uh, who exclusively came out of Fuller Theological Seminary that exclusively have a theology of engaging with the world. Um, and they would not kind of have a drafted a demonology. They propose about like territorial spirits mm-hmm. um, and, and it's intentionally targeting that kind of territorial spirits. So that, that I would classify as more of like charismatic neo-Pentecostal type. Now, and from within that, um, I would say in India, what I would also see, there's another branch of people that's coming out of classical Pentecostals, um, a, a new branch today. Like, so all these terminologies exist in, even in India. Uh, so classical Pentecostals, the second wave uh, uh, movement empowered, bring the, the Catholics and the Anglicans and, and the neo-Pentecostal and charismatics. Um, they call it, in India, they call it now new generation churches. So mm-hmm. that's another add-on to it. How much now, they are impacted? Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, we do have to take a quick break, but you're starting already to get into the second part of our discussion as far as the kind of the colonializing of missiology worldwide, but especially there in India. So we are going to take a quick break and hear from Laird Creative, and then we will be right back with Alan. We'll be right back. Season two of the Ministry Misfits podcast and our awesome theme song are brought to you by Laird Creative Agency. In our social media world, the next connection is always one click or scroll away and your business has to be ready when they find you. That's why Laird Creative is always looking for ways to step your brand up. Whether you're looking to overhaul your brand one time with a new website or want to save money by outsourcing your graphic and media content, Laird Creative Agency is here to help. Laird Creative's mission is to take the difficulty out of the creative process. With Laird Creative, you'll find a dedicated team of artists ready to tackle any creative need that your business has, big or small. If you're looking for an easier way to share the vision of your organization through thoughtful branding and creative content, find them at LairdCreativeAgency.com to get started. Mention the Ministry Misfits podcast and get a free consultation call. Laird Creative, step your brand up. We're back. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are still here with Alan Varghese, and he has given us a very good picture of the history, the very rich mm-hmm. and detailed history of the Indian church, which is a much nicer picture than the history we laid out for the American church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but also know, good going back to what we talked about before of, 
the necessity to have a history lesson yes. for kind of where your faith in is rooted from in a yes. way. Yes, and and the thing that we also want to discuss with him is that this history lesson does show us a lot about our own history and philosophy, specifically around missions mm-hmm. and the the problems that come out of the Western missiology, the modern Western missiology model, although it goes back way further than just modern. You know, we already he already shared about, you know, the fact that there there have been Christians within the Indian subcontinent for thousands of years. And every time a new oppressor came in, they were shocked that there was already a church there. Mm-hmm. And, but they still felt the need that they had to change it. Yeah, because their mission was to carry out their own gospel versus yes. meet the people. And part of what I want to just highlight as well, for those that that maybe didn't hear clearly the first half, is that a lot of the terms that he used as far as how the gospel initially was spread is very much the 5B model that we've got. Because they came in and and integrated themselves within the community, even to the point of the caste system, which you already pointed out had some unintended consequences. But the fact that they felt the need to belong to the people went a long way towards creating a culture that was ready to hear the gospel message actually being presented. And then he also went ahead and shared the Roman Celtic stuff as well, because we then see what happened when the Romans came in and did not try to integrate themselves. Instead, they tried to integrate the culture of India into their own theology and theological models. But the the term that I love that you use, and this is where I really want us to kind of start talking through missiology, is you talked about the cultural cosmology and the fact that classical Pentecostalism really has a better origin story there within India and within Africa and the other Eastern churches because of the culture that was already explaining things from a spiritual standpoint. So let's start actually there talking about you, you are, you know, you're studying, you're studying at Asbury right now for your PhD, but a lot of the work that you've already done and that you're continuing to do is in this area of missiology and especially global missiology. So those that don't remember missiology is Brandon. I don't have it either. <sighs> Boo. It is the theology of mission. Okay. So this is the the theology behind why we go out and do what we do. Specifically, we're talking evangelistic missions normally. We prefer the term evangelistic disciple making. <laughs> <laughs> Because of the fact that we have we we want to see not just evangelism, we want to see discipleship. That's how we build build churches. So globally, missiology, what we in America associate with missiology is this idea of we go over for short term or long term missions 
and we build them a well or we do something and we share the gospel with people that have never heard it before. Mm -hmm. Historically, though, that is not actually the case, because like Alan Alray pointed out, the churches have been there in India and within all of these African tribes and within the Middle East and within even going into Asia for a long, 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 long time. So, Alan, the question for you then is, what should a correct missiology actually look like in a global setting? Yeah, I mean, let me let me again try to approach it from a historical theological lens. Um, so you, so I, I mentioned that when Christianity came to India, the Christians integrated themselves, Syrian Christians integrated themselves within the existing social system, right? Now, okay, that is true. But I felt like, I feel like historically, Christianity had the reach to the marginalized. And that inevitably also act as a critique to the status Christianity, status quo Christianity. So the reason I say that is because you now when the Catholics came, when uh, when Robert de Nobili came, he is a um, he is a Jesuit. Um, uh, uh, if I haven't mistaken, he is a Catholic uh, priest. So he he came in about the late 1600s or 1700s. Even before that, he came. Uh, where the so the local so this happened so the another story I can tell you is uh, the story of like a lower caste fisherman tribe in South India um, approached uh, the Catholics to um, get uh, their military support because they've been oppressed um, from the Mus by the Muslims and the existing higher caste so obviously the Portuguese said of course I will help you they they saw um, a lot of monetary consequences mm -hmm. benefits in it. So they helped. But they also made it clear, like, you all have to accept Catholicism. They're like, all right, whatever, it's fine. According to them, it doesn't change much. But, all right, it's just <laughs> what to do. So Francis Xavier, um, who was actually end up, ended up in Asia, he, went, he, was, he spent a year in India. So he was sent from Goash, uh, Archbishopry, to actually go to Tamil Nadu South and teach the people about what does it mean to be Christian. So, but they were lower cost. So he taught them. So then the next hundred years, uh, somehow this low cost Christian community, South India, just existed as Christian. Right? So then, so the popularity in South Indian and in that part of the world, this is not in Kerala necessarily, in Tamil Nadu, it, it, it became Christianity got associated with the lower cost. But then, uh, so therefore, when Robert Denomaly came in, he was like, no, we could think about Christianity as part of the higher cost too. So then what he did was what I call it Sanskritization of Christianity, meaning Sanskrit was the higher cost um, uh, language uh, the, of the Vedas. So he adopted, he read the Vedas in Sanskrit, and he tried to integrate Christianity into the language of the upper caste. So he dressed like an upper caste. And uh, so he, he what he did was sort of like, because Christianity was associated with the lower caste, I'm going to pitch it to the upper caste. So the reason I, I say that is because consequently, when you see Indian history of Christianity, there's always this lower caste critiquing the upper caste, and then it goes vice versa. 
and and I think there is a track historically, at least from the from the 1400s, from since the time when the Catholics arrived, you see this uh, this, this push and pull between caste controversy. So so even in Kerala, then the Syrian Christianity was like they they're embodying their own privileged minority status. They always had an underlying Dalit Christianity coming through too. They were calling out these upper caste Christians and saying, hey, you are not supposed to be like that. So therefore, even today, every denomination, in every denomination, there is a small faction of uh, Dalit Christianity, I would say, holding the upper caste people accountable to treat each other equal. Now, so that I, I just say that just to, just to say the existing, uh, like, non-Western narrative of how Christianity works in, in that part of the world. Now, directly targeting your question about the missiology and the Western society. Um, I, I think West, obviously when everybody, all of us go into anywhere in the world, we, we have a certain view of things and we think that is correct. Right? And, and we truly believe that to some extent what we believe is true and that's what we want to tell other people about it. Um, so in, in Christianity that, uh, that also adds with the idea that this is the right gospel and this is the way to say it. Uh, so a lot of people say William Carey as the father of modern missions. Mm-hmm. The reason why he's called the father of modern mission is because he is the one who actually from his tract, um, this is a long title of the tract. The tract is, is an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. So that is a long title for for 85 page long tract. <laughs> <laughs> but that caught fire in England. So the, the specific word obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion. The word means. Up until that point volunteerism was not in the picture. And up until that point mission societies were not in the picture. Since mm-hmm. scary we see the Baptist mission. We see all these different groups starting out in the 1800s um, doing mission, wanting to sue, wanting to do mission. So, so basically, they are saying that we are Christians, we are Baptist Christians, we are these Christians, that Christian. We have the means actually convert. Um, so, and that's why Kerry is known as the father of modern mission because he is the one that actually set out that trajectory. Um, and what end up happening is then you move in. So if the Baptists go in, they have their theology to go in with. Um, if you Presbyterian, you have their theology to go in with. But then all of this receives or received a challenge from the culture, existing culture. Everybody think it's a one-way process. We're going to come in and we're going to do this. But that to some extent, they did. And that's why. And people, it, it was not like just, even even under colonialism, it was not. Like, oh, we're just going to come in and we're going to establish whatever we want to do. And that's the end of it. They did receive pushback. Mm-hmm. And to what extent they took it in the right sense or bad sense, it, 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 is, it is a thing. I mean, it's a different thing. But a lot of people, yes, colonialism was used as a vehicle to, 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 to spread their particular theology. So a lot of people did not did not kind of, cannot revolt it because power still existed in the Western way of doing things. So, and then they had uh, education along with it. So one of the things that the missionaries did, a lot of people was they go in, they understand the culture, um, they learn the language, and then they set up this missionary compound. 
this whole mission compound concept came in. And within the compound, they have their own people living and then they establish education. So they, they, they educate the languages, uh, schools. So schools were a, were a big asset for, for this. And that's when Christianization and civilization went hand in hand in that respect. Well, and um, that's still, I mean, that still is a major piece of most American mission models that are long term. Yeah. is the establishing of schools to teach them English, to teach them the Bible. And in a lot of ways, it's a, we're going to assimilate them into what a normal lifestyle would be over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which the education piece, well, I mean, I guess that's debatable too, as far as whether it's good or bad. You know, the... <laughs> the heart of the matter probably is a good one as far as we want these people to be able to read. I mean, you, you already talked about the influence that once the Bible was translated, what Mm -hmm. that had. Yeah. But would you agree? It probably is a better use of resources and time to translate the Bible into the native language than teach somebody to read English just so they could read the Bible in English. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. So, (laughs) Well, it could go. So Laman San is a historian who passed away. He was a historian at Yale University. Um, so he is the one who kind of known. He wrote a book on translating the gospel or translating the message. Um, he, but what ended up happens this is what happened. So I think according to his theory, which I agree, when they translated the Bible into the native language, you gave inadvertently gave the power to the people. Yes. Meaning they know their language very well than you. Yeah, you give them the script, but now they have the imagination. They created, with one word, created the imagination of it. So in a way, whatever they were thinking, when the missionaries translated, I don't know what they were thinking. But if they were thinking thinking that, you know what, we're just going to make them as good Baptists or good Presbyterian or, or whatever denomination. If that was their reasoning, well, God had a different plan with it. <laughs> All right. The Holy Spirit took it and had its own way. So even now, when I read Bible in, in languages that I grew up in, man, you get a different concept. There's a depth mm-hmm. to it, which English cannot capture. And that means if somebody is reading it in Swahili or, or in Malayalam or Tamil, they took it and they run with it. And the imagination is different. And so that so to what well let me let me say this so to what extent they recognized that power came a little later, which involved independence movement and everything. Right. Right. But by that translation, they did get the the, the medium to access their own existing power. And I I'll clarify before we get angry letters. When you say imagination, you're not talking eisegesis. You're, you know, you're, you're talking about the fact that, because I mean, you already said it, and this again is part of a classical Pentecostalism as opposed to the Neo-Pentecostalism of this, they, them being able to read it in their own language allowed Mm -hmm. for them to experience the spirits moving in a much stronger way than they, than you can trying to read it in a language that is not your own. 
Yeah. Okay, and so, so you're not talking, you know, new ideology, new theology, because this is an ancient theology that has been in India longer than it's been anywhere else. It's that they were able to actually have an emotional, spiritual connection to it in a way that could not happen in a in a foreign tongue. Yeah. So this is the thing. So. Let's say New Begin. Um, he's, a, he's a missionary who went to India. He's a British missionary. And then he came back um, and used a lot of principle he understood and came back to the West. And he wrote the famous book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also had this title, Can the West Be Saved? Because he, he saw a lot of this. But one of the things he said in one of the chapters, he said, we got to understand when you go and say a word, you look for a word in their language equivalent to God. The language I come from, you can easily say at least two or three words that could easily mean God. But it has a different weight to it. It's not a different meaning. It's a different weight to it. Yes. Now, and also, let me tell you this. And all these three words, I have a pre-Christian existence. When I say that, we use words that are not exclusively Christian. Like God is not an exclusively Christian thing, like the word God, right? We may have to do some history on how we got the word God, but I'm just saying, <laughs> the thing I'm saying is like, God, everybody can use the word God. It's an English term. And let's say, briefly say, God is an English term that talks about the divine entity, right? If that is what we mean by, but what then when we talk more about the theology of Christian theology of God, we understand that. A lot of specificity, the triuneness of God, um, Jesus and Holy Spirit and the Father. But the word English term God, it's just an English term. So, but then we have a, a loaded history in our cosmology here, right? So people associate it with, oh, maybe it's a monotheistic God and da 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 da. But when you use the word God in the local language in India, they already had a God that they thought they were worshiping. And with the same word. And that is the imagination they get. So most of the time what ends up happening to the pastors is trying to kind of recast that imagination. Like I say, using that, this is the thing, we cannot unlearn it over time. You got to use the existing understanding of that God or or whatever they thought the God is and trying to re-understand them. Hey, say, this is what the gospel is saying. This is what the New Testament is saying. The classical Bible example for this is when Peter when is it Peter when then talked about the unknown God uh, yeah the Paul, Paul. yeah Acts yeah Acts uh, in Athens right and yeah uh, yeah it's Acts so, seventeen I think yeah Acts seventeen yeah so he he went around and walked the city of Athens and he saw the transcription to the unknown God so the to, to the unknown God. I think it's precisely he's referring. Hey, you already have an existing idea of this kind of God. Now let me tell you about what that means from my theological point of view, and then you tell me if this is convincing or not. So when I say about imagination, that's what I mean by every single culture yes. have a certain idea of the divine, and and certain imagination existing in their cultural parlance about God. We in English speaking about it because we only have one word that's God, <laughs> but for a lot of these other cultural, they may have multiple languages, multiple words 
to communicate different facets of God or different components. And so it's a matter of what you use. It's the difference between you use the word Lord and God. Mm -hmm. Right? Even that small difference. Right? We, 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 people, when they pray, to, they pray to the Lord, they pray to Master, they pray to God. This could all mean the same thing, but different weight to it. I think that's what I was trying to communicate. And Alan, you had mentioned it briefly, just but I want to ask further: what has what's the impact on the caste system and how that plays within Christianity? I know you said there was some accountability that it takes place, but how does Christianity kind of play its role within the caste system? So it changes because when we talk about caste, uh, it's it's a macro pan Indian concept. Um, it's it's pretty big. It's it's a caste. It doesn't mean much, but from a theological point of from a Hindu theological point of view, the caste people talk about the four four major divisions of caste system: Brahmin, Kshatriya, Shudra, Vaishya, uh, Shudra, and then the Dalits. So it's like a five layer. I think that's a, a, that layering is a, is a highly Hindu theological uh, category from Vedas, which is fine. A lot of people use that, but within that stratification also attach the occupation of people. Like you are, if you're a Brahmin, you are, your, your occupation should be the priestly. If you're Kshatriyas, you're more like a soldier. Um, and, and the other two are more like um, the lower uh, Kshatriyas and, and, and the Vaishyas are more like a merchant, merchant, merchant class. And, and the Dalits um, are outside of it, so sort of untouchable. Um, they are, and also they attach purity and pollution concepts to all of this. So the Brahmins are the puri, pu, uh, highly purified class and uh, the Dalits are the pollutant class. So, so that, for, that is the system that works. And every single caste, these layers um, in India have multiple small subgroups and subcastes, which called Jatis, J-A-T-I. Um, so when you go to India, there are thousands of Jatis. Um, so even though across the India, across the, the social science world, we call the word caste as a system, a sort of a pan-Indian uh, system, in local contexts, people know these castes as based on these small, small jatis. And if you want to categorize these thousands of jatis into these five uh, layers of caste, that's up to you to do the research, and people have done that, some of them, but it's a lot. So... We are talking about, that's what we are talking about, casteism. Um, what are we challenging in the sense of how did Christianity challenge? Um, as I said earlier, when Christianity ended Kerala, South India, it integrated among themselves into the caste system. And the locals considered Christianity as an intermediary caste between the upper class, upper caste and the lower caste. So they are somehow categorized as not lower, but they are somewhere up in the, up in the ladder. Um, and that caste orientation challenged eventually when more Dalits become Christians. And, uh, and, and it still continued to exist in multiple ways. So, so in, in Pentecostalism, um, even before Pentecostalism, I'm talking about 1800s, uh, 1850s, when the missionaries came in, so what missionaries did, they... Oh, well, uh, that we have to, for this episode, we have to give the missionaries the credit in the sense of they were able to see 
the injustice a little bit more in an objective manner. So I will say to give you two examples. One, the practice of widow burning. Um, that was not just a caste issue. That was just a um, Indian uh, traditional issue. Um, they practiced uh, the sati. That means when the husband passes away, the widow is supposed to jump into the um, a fire and and basically cremate herself uh, with her, her husband. So that practice existed. So William Carey highlighted that first. Um, and that eventually took on a journey of, I mean, al along with integrating the existing Hindu reformers ideas of reforming Hinduism. So William Carey, even though his motive was more of a Christian, uh, Imagwade idea, his argument kind of helped push the case of uh, abolishing Sadi in the British front. But also his claim also kind of gave the reason for the existing Hindu reformers at the time to actually go hand in hand with Kerry to reform this practice. So I would say the missionaries had a bit more objective because they were not inside, they were able to see it differently. The second example I bring it is like slavery. In South India, we did have slavery. We did not have a transatlantic slavery, but they did, the upper caste did institute lower caste as slaves. And and the, and the Catholics went with it. Uh, a lot of people did not challenge it. So the slavery in, in South India was exclusively uh, a caste thing. So when the missionaries came in, the British missionaries came in, they highlighted this as a problem. So they did the same thing. They uh, kind of connected themselves with the local, uh, local Hindu reformers, uh, which some of them were from the Dalit community and advocated the abolition of it. And they what, were able to see it more objectively. Yeah. What What year was that again? Say that again. Um, I have. I'm not. I can't pinpoint. I'm. I'm working on the project right now, but I think it's, in, it's sometime in 1800s, 1850s. That time. okay? Because that that was something that I I've just found kind of interesting was the the fact that you have the the British coming in and British missionaries coming in and them having a problem with the slave situation over there. But for those that don't know historically, if this is the 1850s, this would have been post when Britain had already outlawed slavery within the, mm -hmm. within their empire. Yeah. And that was largely again, due to the influence of the church's abolition movements there within, within there. So that that's part of why I was just curious to to hear timeline wise because we just did this whole history thing talking Juneteenth last yeah. week. So, sorry, continue. No, that that's that's perfect. So perhaps that's the reason. So that's another thing I would let you know. Every single missionary that went in, whether it be Catholic or it be uh, Anglican, they were all influenced by what whatever that was happening in their own native country. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like uh, when when um, when the Catholics came initially, when they came, they were not really uh, against any other existing um, Christianity or whatnot. But then something happened. Obviously, uh, in Europe, Reformation came about, and that kind of led them to actually be very stern in in India. So that is one of the reasons why kind of I think like created a ripple effect for them to be handed. You know what? We have to do this. We have to make sure the local clergy do not speak or do not practice in their own language, but let them do it in Latin. 
because they don't want it, what they don't want what happened in Europe when Protestantism came about. So it's the same thing goes to what you were saw, uh, you were saying about uh, what happened in abolition of slavery. Yeah, I think that that I think that probably gave them a little bit more moral push um, to make that happen. You know, it for you know as as we close out here, you know, part of what you just highlighted there is the fact that you know the the missionaries were there more so from a theological perspective even though the power play was still in their head but that there still was a political push from the governments as to what could and couldn't be taught in all of that you know this is very similar to what we've been talking American history, Cold War theology, a little bit different in a, in a missions setting. But the thing that, you know, you've been highlighting here, the thing, and it's the same thing that Joash, you know, Genshout Joash highlighted of the, the fact that the, the gospel is a, is a force of freedom from oppression mm-hmm. and one that does empower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and in that note, let me let me bring in the 1900s where the shift happened in in modern missions. So in 1910, Edinburgh Conference of Mission happened. Um, it's a massive conference uh, where a, a ton of missionaries came around um, and met at at Edinburgh. Um, and there were not much majority world uh, representation, but there were few. So one among them was uh, Bishop uh, V.S. Azariya from South India. And he gave sort of a, a landmark address. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to read it. This is what he said, part of it. He said, through all the ages to come, the Indian church will rise up in gratitude to attest the heroism and self-denying labors of the missionary body. You have given your goods to feed the poor. You have given your bodies to be burned. But we ask for love. Give us friends. Now, that word, give us friends, it's exactly how a local leader would think about the missionary movement. In the sense of like, theologically, uh, missionaries had a point to communicate and make disciples. But how they did it, um, especially in the 1900s onwards, when people started, when the native leadership started to arise, when the young churches of this majority world becomes not so young, um, they were like, hey, listen, we hear all of that, but you're still bringing a little bit more Westernness into the Christianity you're propagating here. Could you be, could, can we be friends? Meaning like, not just you impacting us, can we impact you too? Now, so we as Azariah said that in 1910, give us friends. And that led to a lot of, and then majority of the uh, world uh, received independence from the British Empire and all the other empires in from that point onwards, from 1930 to 1960s, uh, 1970s to some extent, in the African countries. So that independence, political independence movement happened. That made people really think hard enough. Hey, say to think, what are the good things and what are the bad things about Western missionary movement? And also, more importantly, because they all are, we all are part of the global Christian community. How do we maintain this relationship? What should be our stance? Are they our friends? If that's the case, 
is Western missionary movement or Western church, are they happy to learn from us or not? Now, a lot of extremes happened. And one of the other scholars from Africa called John Jatu, he even called for uh, what's called a missionary moratorium. He's basically saying that let's let's just cut it off. The Western missionaries, all of them should leave. And then period. And let's well, we have to figure ourselves out and we will do it. So. And that, that's where the movement of the, the post-colonial uh, things happen. And we call about decolonization of, of Westernization. Um, and what ended up happening now in Africa, a lot of people see Pentecostal movements as sort of not just a result, a not just a critique to missionary uh, faith, but it's more like recapturing the African faith, meaning like recapturing the cosmological right. faith. So that's when Pentecostalism is more pivotal in the sense of like Pentecostalism somehow sort of not only critiques the 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 Protestant theological thing, I mean missionary ideas, but at the same time it gives a push forward to accept that hey, your pre-colonial era is you can it's continued in Pentecostal movement. So that's when a lot of people are even this is not just Westerners critiquing Pentecostalism. There's a lot of Indians critiquing Indian Pentecostalism, a lot of African um, scholars critiquing African uh, Pentecostal movement that have a lot of these uh, prosperity gospel bend mm-hmm. um, and abuse. A lot of things happen. Um, so, but that 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 is good. I mean, in the sense of like, it, it's better for Africans to critique the African Christianity. It's better for Indians to critique the Indian Christianity. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that the Western church should not critique the non-Western church. They should, but they should know their limits yes. and how they critique it. And it goes vice versa. And that's really good. That's what, you know, this is why, you know, shout out back to CSRM and everything. This is why when we talk international sports ministry movement, you know, we go and we look for indigenous leaders to do this within their communities is because they know their community. We do not. And this idea of, you know, the, the, we want, we need friends more than we need just theological masters is why we talk five B's, why we talk belonging before we even start to talk belief is Mm -hmm. this, it, you know, like we talked about with the star Wars stuff, the breaking down of barriers is the key to being able to have real relationships. And the gospel is able to break the barriers down without a international or without a non or a foreign influence behind it. Yeah. So like you talked about last time with Jesus with the woman at the well, right. like he didn't go straight to changing the belief. He asked her for a drink. Right. Yeah. So Alan, where can people find you right now as you're you're finishing your studies? Where's the best place if people want to get in touch with you, they can do that? I mean, I, I would say Twitter handle would be would be neat. Um man, I, I need to know my Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I'll I'll see if I can pull it up here while while you're thinking. I've got it right yeah. here. At Val Alan Varhees M. Yeah. There you go. A L L A N V-A-R-G-H-E-S-E-M on Twitter. Yeah. And his that will be on his guest portal on ministrymisfits.com as well. 
Alan, we may want to have you back once you're a doctor to, to discuss this stuff even further and everything. If you are interested in finding out more, he also has provided us with a list of articles that will be in the show notes. If you want to go down and, and to that and read some more, if you want to hear more about the historical side of some of the stuff he talked about specifically with the reformation, go check out commuter Christian because I just did an episode with brother Matthew over there talking about that exact thing and the, the history behind that as well. What are we missing, Brandon? I know we're missing something here. I don't know. I just want to say also, thank you, Alan, for coming on. Uh, hopefully for many of the listeners, very much like myself, that this was very much a learning lesson. And so I hope a lot of our listeners got to take in a lot and just appreciate the time that you've put in to share and learn the history of the Eastern Church, but also just how the gospel moves, whether mm-hmm. we do or not, how, how powerful the Holy Spirit truly is. So I just yeah. want to thank you again, Alan. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing to mention as well is it is still birthday month, right? Is it when we release this? Uh, it'll be. It's going to be we close. Just, We're cutting it close. So close. you could still yes. donate to June. You can still donate to the, to the birthday month. You can also just support the show anyway on Patreon. Um, it's patreon.com backslash Mr. Misfits. You can also go to the website, mrmisfits.com and slick, click on the support tab and you'll get all that information there as well. You also can find the blog, which we haven't mentioned it yet today because we're going to be mentioning it in more detail, hopefully next week. Mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade yesterday, as we're recording this, was overturned. There's a lot of nuance and feelings and theological perspectives that fall into that. We did put out a blog on it yesterday dealing with some of that, as well as highlighting some local ministries that we support and that we're partnered with that are doing the work already, including our good friends at Tikva. Mm-hmm. And so go buy the Tikva Tees. You can support them through that as well. I believe if our timing is right, and this is just a fun announcement and for preparation, we have gotten some feedback on last week's episode. You just wanted to use that soundboard part again. Yes, I did. (laughs) Our good friends over at Systematic Ecology thought we didn't dive in deep enough to the first half of our discussion, which does play into even our discussion today. Yep. And especially now that the Obi-Wan series has come to a close, they want to discuss it further with us. So next week, we are hopefully going to be issuing a co-op episode with our good friends over at Systematic Ecology, talking through more of what we talked about last week. Yep. Specifically on the adoption portion. Specifically on the adoption portion. So be sure to check that out. Be sure to go follow follow Alan on Twitter. Again, his Twitter handle will be in his guest bio. And we will talk to you all next week. The Ministry Misfits podcast is a production of Ministry Misfit Media in association with Overwhelming Victory. Dr. Greg Linville and Andrew Fouts are our executive producers, and Brandon Simmons is associate producer. The Ministry Misfits theme song is written and produced by J.D. Laird and Laird Creative Agency. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ministrymisfitmedia at gmail.com or by following at Ministry Misfit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also visit our website at www.ministrymisfits.com or through bio.link backslash Ministry Misfits. If you would like to support Ministry Misfits, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com backslash Ministry Misfits.